Good morning and welcome to ECC. I am preaching to you live from ECC Sanctuary. We are experimenting um, this morning and in the weeks to come with uh, slowly moving more and more toward live streaming. A lot of the uh, stuff you've seen so far has been uh, pre-recorded, but this is live. And we're going to continue to do that and bring you more and more live elements as we go. And we look forward to the time in a couple of weeks when we can begin to resume our uh, in-person gatherings here at ECC, and I hope we'll see many of you there. Thanks for joining us this morning. So yesterday, as I was out running, I listened to an interview with Fleming Rutledge, the, one of the first women to be ordained as an Episcopal priest in the United States. And in that interview, she quoted from George Whitfield, an 18th century English evangelist, who said this, I preach as a dying man to dying men. I preach as a dying man to dying men. And after quoting Whitfield, Fleming Rutledge stated that we who preach Christ should see ourselves every time we get in the pulpit as dying people preaching to dying people. That, that what we have to say is that urgent, that important. And it, it made me wonder what my preaching might look like if I thought every time I got in this pulpit that this may be my last sermon. What would I say if I began to see myself as a dying man preaching to dying people? Now, in a sense, we are all dying, literally. We're all dying people. That is, from the moment we are born, we begin the long journey toward our death. But we are dying in other ways, too, serious ways. We, we are dying in our sins and in its consequences. We are dying in our pride and arrogance. We are dying in our anger, in our divisiveness, in our hatred, in our woundedness and pain, in our racism, both explicit and implicit, and we are dying in the violence that we do to one another. Violence is a symptom, an indicator of the larger realities with, within which we all live. And all, while those realities have, have been with us for a very long time, sometimes they bubble up to the surface and we become aware of them in a new way, particularly when someone pulls out a phone or a camera and shows us our ugliness. That's how I feel about the news lately. I've been so disturbed in the past few weeks, and this week in particular, at the news that has involved hatred and violence and even death to people, our neighbors of color, most recently Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. But there have been many others. The deaths of these men, and then also a verbal confrontation in Central Park between an African-American man, Christian Cooper, and a white woman who called the police and informed them that he was attacking her or threatening her life when it was only a verbal conversation or confrontation. All that has weighed heavily on me this week, and not nearly as heavily as it must weigh on the hearts and minds and lives of our sisters and brothers of color. I was a little disturbed, too, as I was watching the playback this morning of Kate's prayer. And uh, I'm going to assume and hope it was an accident, but two or three times laughing faces came up uh, as she was praying for the situation in the country right now with racism. I hope that was a mistake. If it's not, it's very disappointing. And then, of course, as some will tell me, there are the riots. I do not condone riots. If we are to demonstrate against something, anything, we need to do so peacefully. We need to take a page or two from the playbook of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. These riots are an emotional response to a problem that goes back generations. They are not just a one-off event. This is a city, a people, 
desperately crying out for justice. Theologian Kyle Howard reminds us that in order to even begin to acknowledge the impact of trauma, we need only stop for a minute and consider the last time we got angry. Perhaps you slammed your fist down on a desk. Perhaps you even broke something or threw your phone. And I can identify with that. I I get that. I can struggle with anger in those ways sometimes when when it boils over. Well, likewise, on a much different level, riots are a larger corporate response to emotional and racial trauma. And this is why Dr. King referred to them as riots, as the language of the unheard. The language of the unheard. So I pray that we can listen to the language of the unheard faithfully and with open hearts and minds that are willing to hear our part in the scourge of racism, even and especially as we continue to pray for peace and work toward justice. Now, it would be easy for anyone listening to say that what I just said there has absolutely nothing to do with our passage today on the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, though I believe it does. However, let's let's assume, even if I tried to force something into the sermon that doesn't fit, it needed to be said. And I needed to say it. And to my way of thinking, for me not to say it was the greater offense and the greater risk. All of this, and certainly also the ongoing challenges with coronavirus and the pandemic and the economy and the division that persists in our country, the the lives that have been lost more than 100,000 plus in our country alone, the lives that are being torn apart by the, the challenging realities of what it's doing to our economy, what it's doing to our families, all of this makes me want to pray all the more fervently. If there were only a way forward, a way toward peace and justice and goodness and beauty and truth and harmony that all of us could get behind, if only there were a way. For that is a way forward that our world, our community, our congregation, we all need. I believe the way forward is found in the depth and the breadth of the good news we're going to celebrate from this week's passage. This morning we're going to look at the passage we often refer to as the conversion of the Apostle Paul, Saul into Apostle Paul. Saul, a a violent man, eventually becomes known as the Apostle Paul and writes in Romans 1.16 in our New Testaments, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And even in that we can hear a hint of the racism that Paul and his fellow Jews had to overcome in bringing the gospel forward, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The good news that was true for Saul on his way to Damascus, the good news that was true for the Apostle Paul as he later became known in the book of Romans, is also good news for us today. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I'm going to briefly take a moment here, and I want to define a few words for us before we move on. Let's look at three words. Gospel, salvation, and believes. Gospel. Gospel is a word that translates a Greek word that means good news. It is the word from which we get our English words evangelism and evangelical. Strictly speaking, the gospel is the story about Jesus, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. All of it. The gospel is not 
the plan of salvation, or the Romans wrote, or whatever. The gospel is not the plan of salvation that teaches us how to get saved. That's a response to the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus. And that story is the power that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, most succinctly, is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. And then when we hear that word salvation, we can fall into the trap of thinking it is only about having our sins forgiven and going to heaven when we die. That that to be saved is to be saved from judgment alone. But there's also a salvation for something. There's a salvation to something, right? We are not only saved from judgment and death, we are saved for a new way of life. We are saved for a purpose and for the reality that one day we will reign with God. We are saved for a way of life that is transformative for us and is also for the common good. Our salvation is for the good of all, not just those of us who are individual followers of Jesus Christ. Third word, believes. To believe the gospel, the story about Jesus, is not merely to agree that it is true. Now certainly that is part of it. But it's more than that. It, it is to put our confidence in the gospel, the story of Jesus. I've, I've shared with you before the work of Dr. Matthew Bates. He believes that the word we often translate as faith or belief ought to be translated as allegiance. Allegiance. Our English words, faith and belief, for example, didn't even exist when the inspired word of God was written down. It came to us in Greek and Hebrew for the most part. The Greek word we often translate as believe or to have faith requires something more of us. That is, to believe is not only to think that something is true, it is to give our lives to it, which is more robust than how we often think of belief or faith. The illustration that Bates uses to get at this is that uh, that of a flag bearer, armies of old, a soldier who would go before the troops on the front line carrying the flag knowing full well that it probably meant certain death, and yet they still continued to volunteer to carry the flag forward, even as one after another after another fell to their deaths. That's allegiance. That's a better and more powerful and more biblical picture of faith, to believe something to the extent that you would lay down your life for it. And if you and I are going to get from where we are to where we need to be, to where we can have that kind of commitment, then we're going to need to be transformed. So the good news of the story of Jesus, His birth, His life, His teaching, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, the good news has the power to save us, to deliver us from lives enslaved to sin and enslaved to rebellion against God and God's ways, and to set us free to live new lives just lives, good lives, beautiful and true lives. Lives lives in submission to the King of Kings. If we give ourselves to it. It has the power to do that if we give ourselves to it completely, wholeheartedly, confidently, self-sacrificially, and boldly. If we give our allegiance to Christ alone. And that is what we see when Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. And that is what we need in the lives of each of us. To paraphrase D.L. Moody, the 19th century evangelist, the world has yet to see what God can do with a person fully consecrated to Him. The world has yet to see what God can do with a person fully consecrated to Him. Moody supposedly then added, I intend to be that person.
In the opening verses of Acts chapter 9, something new happens. Luke, the author of Acts, uses a word, a label for the followers of Jesus that he's not used before. Saul, the Pharisee, is still tracking down and persecuting Christians, breathing out murderous threats, the passage says. And then we read at the end of verse 1, He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Luke calls those first Christians the way. Why? There's something else we're meant to see, but it's obscured in every English translation I consulted. The Greek word for the way has actually already popped up three times in the last part of chapter 8, the passage that we looked at last week, verses 26 to 40. In verse 26, the angel of the Lord says to, to Philip to go to the road, the south road, the road that goes south to Gaza, and the, the Greek word there translated as road is the same word that Luke uses in chapter 9, verse 2, as the way when he refers to Christians. We find the same word again in chapter 8, verse 36, where Luke says that Philip and the eunuch traveled along the way. And in verse 39, just after the Ethiopian has been baptized and Philip is beamed out of there, we're told that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Same word. And I think this repetition of the word way is intentional. From a literary point of view, Luke is using the last part of the book of Acts chapter 8 to prime the pump for Saul's conversion in chapter 9 when we are told that he is setting out to persecute those who belonged to the way. One scholar observes that this label for the early followers of Jesus likely comes from, likely comes from the prophet Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is a verse you're going to recognize, most of you. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's the same verse that is used in all four Gospels to describe the message proclaimed by John the Baptist, and it ties into other passages in Isaiah that speak of the way in which the Lord will journey when he liberates his people from exile in Babylon. So it's the way home from exile, exile in Babylon for the people of Israel, and our own exile in sin and rebellion against God. This way to God is now finished, and we who have come to know Jesus, we walk on this way. It is about a way to God, and it is about the way of God in and through us in the world. It is about a way to God, and it is about the way of God in us and through us out into the world. It's the way toward peace and justice and goodness and grace and mercy and beauty and truth and the harmony that we all need, the harmony, the peace, the justice that our, our broken and beautiful world needs as well. Once again, we are transformed not only for ourselves, but for the common good. Saul, who set out to persecute members of the way, is met by Jesus on the way to Damascus, and now he himself belongs to the way. (laughs) Again, the way to God and the way of God and his people in the world. And one of the first things that becomes apparent to us in in this story is that if God can save Saul of Tarsus, God can save anyone. If God can save Saul of Tarsus, God can save anyone. All throughout the Gospels and earlier in the book of Acts, we see people coming to Christ, and most of them, to my memory, if not all of them, are at least open to Jesus, if not outright seeking Jesus. But Saul, not so much. Saul is an opposing force. He's a violent man. He's trying to stamp it all out. He's different. 
Saul was there in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen became the first martyr. He stood there and approved of Stephen's murder. And in persecuting the followers of Jesus, Saul discovers in our passage that he is in fact persecuting Jesus. In chapter 9, verse 4, the risen Christ says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Not my followers, me. If Saul can be saved, anyone can be saved. Getting at this point, historian Tom Holland, not the guy who plays Spider-Man, a different one, Historian Tom Holland writes about the impact Saul's experience and growing understanding of Jesus had in, on his, his life and his ministry. So referring to the, the torture and the crucifixion that Jesus underwent, Tom Holland writes this. Christ, by making himself nothing, by taking on the very nature of a slave, had plumbed the depths to which only the lowest, the poorest, the most persecuted and abused of mortals were confined. He's talking there about crucifixion. If Paul could not leave the sheer wonder of this alone, if he risked everything to proclaim it to strangers, likely to find it disgusting or lunatic or both, then that was because he had been brought by his vision of the risen Jesus to gaze directly into what it meant for him and for all the world. That Christ had become human and suffered death and the ultimate instrument of torture was precisely the measure of Paul's understanding of God. That he was love. The world stood transformed as a result. Such was the gospel. Paul, in proclaiming it, offered himself as the surest measure of its truth. He was nothing, worse than nothing. A man who had persecuted Christ's followers, foolish and despised, and yet... He had been forgiven and saved. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And if Paul, then why not everybody else? If Saul of Tarsus can come to faith in Jesus and experience the radical transformation he does in becoming the Apostle Paul, then so can anyone, so can I, so can you. And make no mistake, Saul is radically transformed. He, he goes from wanting to take down uh, this, this Christian sect toward becoming its architect, its, its champion, its strongest voice, even to the point of his own persecution and imprisonment and torture and ultimately his death. Here at ECC, we talk of our ECC touchstones of welcome, transformation, and presence the measure of who we hope and pray to become. Transformation is about providing the resources and relationships to help one another on the journey from curiosity to Christiformity, we like to say. That is, the journey from wanting to know about Christ to having Christ's character, Christ's divine nature formed within us. So if we were to apply the ECC touchstone of transformation to Saul's life, we could say that before he meets the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's not interested at all, right? After Jesus appears to him, and he's blinded and he falls to the ground, however, he moves rather quickly toward curiosity. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? That's what he says. And although we don't know a lot about Paul's transformation, we know it happened. Eventually, he who tried to rid the world of the Christian faith is able to say of himself and his commitment to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has pledged 
his allegiance, friends, not to Rome, not to Israel, not to Judaism, but to Christ alone. Even if it costs him his life. That's Christiformity. This calls to mind for me a quote from 19th century English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said, quote, the most useful members of a church are usually those who would be doing harm if they were not doing good. The most useful members of a church are usually those who would be doing harm if they were not doing good. Surely, that is true of the Apostle Paul. All the energy and passion that he put into trying to destroy the church and torture Jesus' followers has been rerouted to serve the church, to plant new churches, to nourish the kingdom of God in the world, and to teach all of us how better to follow Jesus along the way. When God saved Saul and turned him into Paul, he did not only save him from judgment and death, he saved him for something. Chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Jesus speaks to Ananias about going to pray for Saul. Jesus says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Saul is not only saved from hell and death, he's called to lay down his his racism against Gentiles and share with them the love of God in Christ instead. He's called to stop separating himself out from them and to welcome them into the community of Christ instead. As he will say in Galatians 3.28, in the reality of the gospel, in the presence of the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. And this is where the events of this week and how each of us responds to these events comes up against the truth and beauty of the gospel. For the gospel cares about how we treat one another, all human beings. The gospel cares about injustice and hatred. The gospel mandates that we lay down our lives for one another, that we love one another, that we be in community with one another. For that is the way forward, friends. That is the way forward. That you and I are so transformed, that we are so consecrated to God, so pledged, that we've so pledged our lives for Christ that we will stand up, that we will speak up, that we will even be flag bearers for the kingdom of God, even if it kills us. The historian I mentioned earlier, Tom Holland, has written several historical books, and the the one I'm reading now that I quoted from earlier is called, is entitled Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. But Tom Holland never claims to be a Christian, though he was brought up in a nominally Christian home. He always thought of himself as mostly influenced by Greek and Roman culture and the Enlightenment, not the Christian faith. But a funny thing happened as he researched and wrote this book. Tom Holland discovered that even in post-Christian countries and societies, many of the values that we hold dear did not come to us from the Greeks or Romans, but from Christ and the Apostle Paul. In his own words, he writes this. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two-millennia-old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who live in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it is nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. 
It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. That's from his article, Why I Was Wrong About Christianity, and I've linked it for you in the Bible app live events. One review of the book stated Holland's central thesis this way, very succinctly. Whether you like it or not, you are a product of Christianity's 2,000-year-old revolution. Whether you like it or not, you are a product of Christianity's 2,000-year-old revolution. In an interview that I have linked, a video in your interview that I have linked in the Bible App Live event, scholar N.T. Wright and Tom Holland uh, have a conversation about these things in the context of what happened to the Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus. Tom Holland says that Paul's conversion and mission are, and I quote, a depth charge deep beneath the foundations of the classical world. It was not something that was really noticed at the time, but then it began to ripple outwards and to transform the world right down to the present day. Now, of course, the original depth charge was the coming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, but I understand what he's saying here. Paul's conversion, Paul's mission, Paul's ministry and writings were the means by which the the gospel was unleashed into the world in a powerful way. And its impact does indeed ripple forward throughout all of history. Holland goes on to say that Paul's letters, along with the four gospels, are, quote, the most influential, the most impactful, the most revolutionary writings that have emerged from the ancient world. And keep in mind, he is not a Christian by profession of faith. He's simply acknowledging that the culture and the values that have come down to him and shaped him and all of us have their root in Christ and from the values that flow from the kingdom of God. Oh, that we could have more depth charge moments today in our lives, in our congregation, in our world, in this beautiful and broken world. Oh, that you and I would so pledge our allegiance to Jesus and His way that our faith, our passion, our compassion, our sense of justice would set off ripples from this day forward. So what are we going to do in response to the good news that the gospel, the story of Jesus and what He has accomplished is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes? Once again, as I did last week, I want to direct you to the link in your Bible app live event and in the downloadable bulletin as well to that Bless Every Home website. If we believe the gospel has this kind of power, shouldn't we be praying for our neighbors and people in our lives to have their own encounter with Jesus, their own Damascus Way experience? I checked the other day and found that since last week, when I first mentioned this, our ECC account on Bless Every Home has has moved to adopting 460 homes. That's fantastic. But let's adopt more, shall we? Let's start systematically praying for our neighbors once again and engaging in our BLESS evangelism initiative. Again, BLESS stands for Begin With Prayer, which this website helps with. Listen With Care, this website all helps, also helps you uh, track that eating together, serving with love, and eventually sharing our story, our experience with the good news of Jesus Christ. And then second, let's follow the lead of our children. On this Sunday, when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, when we remember the dramatic light that blinded Saul and helped him to come to faith in Christ, let's light a candle somewhere in the house or at the dinner table each night 
to remind us of all the things that Kristen mentioned in the children's moment and of how we might be a light to someone else, someone perhaps who is in need. Let's light a candle to remind us to pray that God's kingdom will come in Minneapolis and in any community where there is violence and injustice and in our own community, in our hearts and in our relationships. Let's make a commitment that you and I will go out into the world and we will live as dying people among dying people, that this thing is that urgent and that important. What kind of impact would that make in your life if you saw yourself as one who lives and speaks as a dying person among dying people? Would you pray with me as we close? Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen.